Amen. Please be seated. I have a passage or two passages for you in the worship booklet for you to look at. We are in a short series for Advent, a topical series called Portraits of Providence. And I'm taking my cue for this Advent season from Galatians 4, where Paul declares, in the fullness of time, that phrase is important, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son born of woman. In the fullness of time is loaded with millions and millions of actions ordained by God, providential workings of God to build to that monumental moment of the Lord Jesus being born. But it doesn't just stop with the birth of Jesus. Uh, All aspects of our lives are also of particular concern to God, and His hand is upon His children in a providential way. It says in our Confession of Faith, especially upon those who He's called to Himself through Christ, especially upon His church, God's providence rests and works and is active. Meditating on biblical examples of God's providence, I believe, has the effect of lifting us from the moment we find ourselves in, whatever it may be. And it encourages us. It gives us strength. It relieves some stress. It gives us a a bright future to look forward to, knowing that God is working these things together. In particular, as we look now at the second figure, the person of Joseph, I'm interested in analyzing his life a bit with this question of God's presence in his life. I'm very interested in the way that we speak as Christians. You know, what we believe the Bible teaches, what we believe or are our convictions, we say in the phrases and things that we utter. You know, when somebody is delivered some, from some horrible circumstance or a, a challenge that they just got through, we might say to them, boy, the Lord must have really been watching over you. I've caught myself saying to others who I've met after they've gone through a terrible trial, the Lord must have really been with you during that difficult time. Now, what do we mean when we say God with us this way? Is he more with us at some times than others? Well, I would like us to look at least in a, in a sweep over fashion of the life of Joseph to answer this question. I think that a proper understanding of God's providence in our lives, even personally, will be of great assistance to us. An understanding of how and when God relates with us personally or directly to us, I think this can help us be confident and handle those things that come our way in life, especially the things, so many of them, that seem inexplicable. So here as I read God's holy word, the two portions that are listed in your bulletin. I'll also do some filling in of the story because his life spans many chapters. Genesis 37, 1 through 4 to begin. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing in the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Billah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, the other name for Jacob, Israel loved Joseph more than any of the other other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now you know the story of Joseph, hopefully, if you don't, it's an amazing, uh, it's amazing display of God's providence in his life. 
he gave Joseph the ability to have dreams and interpret dreams. In the dreams he had most closely to this episode of receiving this robe of colors, it was him with his brothers in the field. They had just harvested the grains laying on the ground. They picked it up and they bundled it. And his dreams said that his bundle stood up straight and the other bundles representing his brothers bowed down at, at Joseph's sheath. And of course, Joseph told his brothers this. Now, we don't know exactly. It's naive, naivete for sure, but he's also trying to figure out the meaning of it because he didn't have it specifically at that moment. It wasn't clear to him yet. So he's telling his brothers about how basically theirs will bow down to his. And they already don't like him. So you can imagine how this goes over with them. We come to verse 18 now of chapter 37. Also, they're printed for you. Follow as I read. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead and with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh and on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Joseph got to Egypt, you may remember, he was a slave, and he was sold into the service of Potiphar. Potiphar happens to be, happens to be, a very rich man with a palace, and Joseph went from being a rank-and-file slave there to the administrative leader of the whole household of Potiphar, this palace. He went from a pit, literally, to a palace. But you know what happens. Eventually, over time, Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, and when Joseph rebuffs her advances and even runs away from her, she's so insulted by this that she makes up a story to Potiphar, and Potiphar has to throw him into prison. From the pit to the palace, now to a prison. While in the prison, over the course of either a few years or many years, scholars disagree at the time span, but it wasn't a short period of time, he's in prison and wins over the prison warden to the point where the warden lets him run the prison. And while he's in prison, two of Pharaoh's servants find themselves at odds with their master, and they're in prison, and they have these dreams they can't interpret, and Joseph is given the ability to interpret them, and eventually, word gets to Pharaoh, the king of everything at that time, who was having dreams of his own, that there was someone in his prison who could interpret those dreams, and he's back in the palace again. An amazing picture of God's nonstop providence in the life of of Joseph. And from that place of prominence that he ends up, he is used of God to preserve the children of Israel, even under the 12 tribes from those 12 brothers, to preserve them through a famine 
so that eventually the promises of God would be realized as Jesus Christ comes from the tribe of Judah, no less. When do you think Joseph felt the presence of God the most? More importantly, when was God with Joseph the most? Was it in the palace, the prison, or the pit? Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand his word. Let's bow. Lord, we know that you are present, but we do not often understand how and when. We believe in you. We know that what you have done for us through Christ. We know that you are our God and our Father. We sense our adoption in Christ through the ministry of your Spirit. Yet sometimes and in some circumstances, we don't feel your presence. We don't recognize your presence. We acknowledge your care and your protection, your provision, but we struggle in real time to understand how you are with us. In our humanness, we sometimes think with all that you have to do of what importance is the little life that we live. Please teach us by your word. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There have been many popular attempts to quantify the presence of God in the life of a Christian, in the life of a believer. Now, I know you good Presbyterian folks, even you, if I search your house and you haven't moved recently, I could find this poem somewhere. It'll either be on a mug, a coffee mug at the back of your cabinet. It'll be on some framed something that you got from a long-gone relative and you feel bad getting rid of it because it's from your long-gone relative. And it says this, and I think it quantifies a popular notion. One night, a man had a dream. He dreamed he was walking along the beach with the Lord. Across the sky flashed scenes from his life. For each scene, he noticed two sets of footprints in the sand, one belonging to him and the other to the Lord. He noticed that many times along the path of his life, there was only one set of footprints, and it was at the lowest and saddest time of his life that this occurred. He was bothered by only one set of footprints and said to the Lord, I don't understand why when I needed you most, you would leave me. Of course, you know the response if you're familiar with this poem or this story. The Lord said, during your times of trial and suffering, when you see only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. Now the poem illustrates how many Christians understand God's presence in their lives. And I do think in the general sense, it's good to remind ourselves of God's presence in our lives because we doubt that he is actually there with us oftentimes or we wonder about it. But what the poem stresses is that God is specially present or more present at certain times than others where there's only one set of footprints. This is really the thought that we relay, by the way, when we say to someone, boy, God was really with you. He must have really been with you at that time when they go through something difficult. We, we say that oftentimes or often enough. So I would like to explore just a little bit this morning with how God is present with us, his children. Also, though, when he's most present with us in the life of a believer, because I do think that the tendency to be apprehensive or have anxiety or to worry, it relates directly with how we understand God's presence with us. To understand this presence, let's survey the life of Joseph, which is pretty well known to most believers, but I'll say enough about his life that you'll gather it if you're not familiar. Let's ask the question, when was God most present in the life of Joseph? Shall we check for footprints? Well, we might say at first blush, we think of the amazing events of his life, that God was most with Joseph when he was in the palace. 
You have read the first 12 verses of chapter 39, and we see how he gets in to Potiphar's house, the first of two major palace experiences. 17-year-old Joseph, sold into the hands of foreigners, who eventually trade him or sell him to Potiphar. It's an amazing transference. Could have gone anywhere. Slaves in those days could have easily been killed or worked to death and put in some other setting. But instead, he finds himself taken from his suburban-like home, sold out by his brothers, and now he finds himself in a palace. Footprints begin showing up to his initial owners or through his initial owners as he's sold and finds himself in the palace of Potiphar. These series of events that lead him to this estate certainly indicate God's hand. But you know, it doesn't stop there. He spends some time in the prison, we know, but then he goes back to the palace, and now the palace of all palaces. Pharaoh's palace now, and second in command, no less. Certainly his palace experiences in Potiphar's house and in Pharaoh's house. How he gets there just shows you that God's footprints are everywhere. It says in Genesis 41, his second palace experience with Pharaoh now. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have set you over all the land of Egypt, the most powerful nation known at that time. Then Pharaoh took a signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. You can have my authority. And clothed him in garments of fine linen, a far cry from his clothes as a prisoner. He put a gold chain around his neck and made him ride his second, in his second chariot. So his people are bowing to the first chariot because Pharaoh's there. They don't have time to get up when the second one comes by and they're bowing to Joseph too. What an ascent. God's footprints everywhere. They called out before him, bow the knee, when Joseph came. Thus, Pharaoh sent him, set him over all the land of Egypt. There he is in this palace experiences. And looking back, you'd have to say, boy, was God with Joseph in the household of Potiphar and all that he did. And certainly under Pharaoh, the second in charge of everything at that time. These palace experiences certainly manifest the Lord's presence. You know, it's interesting when you look at Genesis 37 all the way through this time in Pharaoh's charge, 10 times the passage says, the Lord was with Joseph. So footprints are there, obviously, as the, as the scriptural writer Moses says, the Lord was with Joseph. We know who's making this happen. The statement is to let us know. It's not just the skills and abilities of Joseph that get him noticed. It's not just Potiphar being wise unto Joseph or Pharaoh wise unto Joseph. It's God moving things so that he would have these palace experiences. In fact, it's the exact description used with each of the patriarchs in the key biblical figures in the Old Testament at least once. You see it with Noah. You see it with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God was with David. God was with his prophets. Often you'll hear or see that phrase listed. Now we see God is with Joseph at this moment of his palace experiences. In chapter 39 of Genesis, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian who had bought him from the Ishmaelites and brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. There it is. His palace experiences are because God was with him. He became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. The author going out of our, his way to let us know how God was with Joseph in the palace. What he did there even shows it further. In chapter 39, Joseph found favor in, the sight, in his sight, Potiphar's sight, and attended him. 
and he made him the overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. This palace experience in Pharaoh, we already read, did something similar, an immediate ascent. It'd almost be like one of my sons working at Charlie's and then getting a call from the White House and saying, when you're done washing that last car, come up, I need a chief of staff. That's, that's the kind of ascent we're talking about in Potiphar's house and then in Pharaoh's house. Where was the palace for you? That's the question to ask yourself. We've had lots of joyous occasions, even in the middle of difficult times. Babies born in our congregation, you have a new child in the home, and it's just that experience of clear, the clear grace of God giving you this gift. All of us experience that together when one of us has a child. And how about the grandparents in our midst who get to enjoy that child? I'm looking forward to that. I mean, not too soon, but I'm looking forward to it because I cannot wait to have the benefits of parenting and then send them right home with their parents after. It's beautiful. I love everything about the idea of grandparenting. And I could see the grandparents who are in that stage, that look of satisfaction on your face. That's a palace experience that God gives us where we know it's his goodness that is poured out on us and we can sense that in relationship with our kids and our grandchildren. There are other times that this happens in our life where it's so clearly the grace of God. He gives you that promotion in your work or that raise or that material thing that you just know you don't need, but he just pours it out upon you. And you pause to just thank him because you know it's him who gives you this. Maybe you've been sick and you've recovered from that sickness. And you know, when you're really sick, it feels desperate. It could be desperate. Maybe it was for you, and the Lord gave you healing. He saw you through that. And you look back at that epic in your life that was difficult, that might have been near death. And you thank God that you're here, and that he's given you this grace. And you look at the moment you're living in, this moment that you can recognize what he's done for you, as a palace time in your life, where it's just you can rest a little bit and know that he is good. And you bask in that a bit, and you feel that, and you sense that. That's time in the palace. And that's when we're most aware of God's presence, right? That's what we see read in the life of Joseph. And the Lord was with Joseph and caused all to prosper in his hands. But actually, I don't think we would want to just stop there and settle it and say that's where God was most present in the life of Joseph. I think we should push further. I would say God was not most with Joseph in the palace, but rather when he was in the prison. Think of his prison experience. You know, if we only read of his successes in the palace, we would miss the years that he spent in prison, in jail, confined, restricted, not able to enjoy all the freedoms that he might have when he's out. That's the second half of chapter 39. I focus mostly on the first half. How he gets into the prison shows that God is orchestrating events. He's most with Joseph. In fact, it was a terrible occurrence that got him there, but it does show you God's orchestrating these events. In Genesis 39, the last part, is Potiphar's wife now pressing upon him, and he refuses her advances, even runs out leaving his cloak. And this is what occurs. She laid up his garment by her until her master came home. Then she told him the same story. The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. She's completely lying, setting him up, but people are listening, and they're not going to listen to a slave over Potiphar's wife. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. This was an offense against him, too, that Joseph would do this thing. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison. Now, we can't derive God's presence this moment, but as this prison experience unfolds, we start to see it. You know, 
Potiphar's wife is at least accusing him of attempted rape, if not rape itself. Whatever the case may be, here is Joseph now in prison. Certainly he's saying, where is God? And I would submit this is where he sees him most present. Now realize, at first blush, if someone is accused of a crime this serious, jail is not where they go. They are executed, especially a slave. For some reason, Potiphar has this amount of mercy that he sends him to a prison instead. It says in the last part of chapter 39, Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. It's potential this wasn't the worst of the prisons. It seems like it wasn't. There's some free movement in it. So he doesn't put him in the worst kind of prison or have him executed. Already you can sense that there may be footprints here. He's not going to the worst possible place. There he was in the prison. But the Lord was with Joseph, it says in Genesis 39, 21, in the prison. And the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of the prisoners who were in his prison. It just seems like God's more with him here because in the palace, you know, things are going good and he's successful and it's working. Now he should not be successful in prison, but yet God's with him and he gives the prison warden some knowledge of this guy who's just come to him and he recognizes, takes favor with him, sees his gifting and his abilities, administrative skills, his managerial uh, ways and abilities. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. In the prison, the Lord was with Joseph. Now, what's presented in chapter 40 and 41 takes some years. As I mentioned earlier, some scholars think it's a couple years. Some say it could have been 10 years. We don't know for sure. But he's in prison and things are unfolding in these chapters. There he is running the whole prison, certainly footprints everywhere. How could this possibly be the case? And after some time, two prisoners come into the prison. Uh, They're out of sorts with their master Pharaoh and they're sent to prison. They're having dreams, and of course, there's Joseph. By God's providence, footprints appear. He's able to give them the meaning of their dreams. And one of them wasn't a good meaning. They were going to die. The other one was going to survive, and they were going to go back and serve Pharaoh. Now, it would have been great, and Joseph said as he's leaving, hey, make mention to Pharaoh that I helped you out here. The guy forgets. Who knows for how long? But after time, while he's in prison, God's doing his providential work. This butler, essentially, has opportunity. This cupbearer has an opportunity when Pharaoh's complaining of dreams he's having that are keeping him up. And no one liked it when Pharaoh wasn't happy. We've got to get this solved. And he said, you know, I know someone that I met not too long ago who can interpret dreams. And Joseph, the footprints of God, take him out and put him into the palace that we just considered. Wouldn't you have to say that really God was most with Joseph, not in the palace, but in the prison? Now, where was the prison for you? And the prison might be described as that period of time where something's thrust upon you and it binds you. It could be accusations. It could be, which are false and you know it, but you you live under them, just like Joseph. It could be something as, like an addiction, something very serious that you feel enslaved to. You're a believer, you trust Christ, but you can't get away from this besetting sin. And you feel overwhelmed by it. It it colors your life and your thinking. You feel like you're imprisoned. 
It could be something related to a relationship that's difficult, that's soured, and it's constantly there. It's a stress or an anxiety. It could be a health issue you're dealing with that doesn't seem to go away, and it always taints everything you're looking at. We have these experiences in our life, and they're meant to draw us into a greater dependence upon God, to trust him and his providence in our life, to recognize that he is in control of even these things, and they come from his hand. Maybe we can say, in the prison is actually where God is most present with his people. Times of trial can be considered like prison experiences oftentimes. Is this where he is most with Joseph? I think we have to push further. I think there's another episode that we should not overlook. It may have happened quickly, but it's significant and could have set all of the rest off pace, out of sync, never to happen. Maybe we would be better to say that he was most with Joseph, not when he was in the palace, not when he was in the prison, but when he was in that pit that his brothers had thrown him into. We're told in the early part of chapter 37 that Joseph was unquestionably Jacob's favorite son. To signify this, Jacob thought a good idea would be to give him a coat of many colors, a robe of many colors. Maybe this long sleeve coat meant hands off in Jacob's mind, putting it on his favorite son, but it was a bullseye as far as the brothers were concerned. It just was the capstone of all that they didn't like about Joseph and his relationship with Jacob. Jacob was largely responsible for cultivating this jealousy. In the second verse of chapter 37, he was telling tales, or he was telling on his brothers. They probably weren't doing what they're supposed to do in their family business, and, you know, the manager type, the guy who gets stuff done, the administrator, Joseph, goes back and tells his dad, they're not doing this. We're not getting the, pro- the production we need because they're doing this. You can imagine him telling him this. And, of course, then Jacob responds and the brothers hear about it and who knows what it means to them. But it's building up. It's just building up to a point where they just can't stand this guy. I mean, this, he's just causing nothing but trouble for them and they're fine the way they are. They don't need him in their life like this. And here is Joseph constantly showing up. And then, for some reason, and we know it's by God's providence, he decides to travel over 10 miles wearing the coat. I mean, leave the coat home, right? Wearing the coat so they could see him from a long way off coming. They're like, here he comes. In fact, we read in verse 18 of chapter 37, they saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired him against him to kill him. They could see him a long way off. It takes a long time to get there. What are we going to do about this guy? This is our chance. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Some translations, because the word is unique, here comes this master dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. The pits were cisterns that were dug in various pastures where livestock would graze. They were not springs with water in the bottom. They were just big holes that you could pour water in. So if you had animals there, you could draw upon it and and give it to them. It would store water. In these cases, they were empty. They're, they're very deep. You can't get climb out of one, and there's no water in this one. In fact, it says, let's throw him in this pit. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what comes of his dreams. They're ready to kill him, and they could just left him in the pit. In fact, that's why 37 verse 24 says this, I believe. They took him, threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So here he is in the pit now. No amount of managerial skills or aptitude could get him out of the pit. He's too far to even negotiate his situation, and there's nothing that would sustain him. They could walk away, and he would wither and die a terrible death. 
or they could just slaughter him right there and leave him in there. He is totally helpless. He is in a state of utter desperation. He's, going, he's as good as dead. That is what the pit is in the life of Joseph. But what he did in the pit shows the presence of God. What did he do? Nothing. He couldn't do anything. He was in a place of total, place of total helplessness. And just when everything seemed lost, some 20 feet above, his brothers start talking about the situation and they see some Ishmaelites traveling. These are people of Midian who were uh, nomadic people who traded. They'd buy some stuff in one town, go to another town, cross country borders all the time, and they were heading to Egypt. And Judah gets the idea, hey, maybe we ought to think about not killing him and making something off of this. Now, remember, these are the heads of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel who would be sustained by Joseph eventually. Sustained by Joseph. And Judah, the one who says, let's keep him alive, is the one who is the head of the tribe from which Jesus comes. But Judah says, let's not kill him. Let's make a buck. Let's sell. The hands or the footprints of God start showing in the cistern as the brothers talk above and they pull him back out and they decide to sell him and set him on the course we've just considered. One commentator said, one commentator said, God's secret providence is behind the darkest deeds of men and works to their ultimate good. Joseph, much later, when the brothers present themselves to him, they don't even recognize him after so many years, when they come begging for food in Egypt and Joseph is in this place in the palace, they finally realize as Joseph reveals himself who he is and they're overwhelmed with their guilt and their shame for what they have done. And Joseph recognizes the footprints of God in his life, when he says to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And whether Joseph knew it or not, that's an understatement. Yes, the saving of Egyptian lives, the saving of the Israelites, but the saving of the seed of the woman who would eventually be Jesus and save eternal lives the footprints of God working in Joseph's life, I would say, we could surmise, they're most present with him in the pit. Our confession says wonderfully, the most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts to chastise them for their former sins or discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness in their hearts. You know, it's time in the pit. You can't do anything else and you can think about things. That they may be humbled and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and holy ends. A place of helplessness so that you realize your dependence. There's nowhere to go. You cannot save yourself. You're in the pit. Our confession also says, talking about providence, as the providence of God does in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner, it takes care of his church and disposes all things to the good thereof. God was certainly most present in the life of Joseph when he was in the pit in light of all of this. Look at the footprints. Now, where was the pit for you? Where was it that you had an immediate sense that you were trapped and there was no way to get out? You were stuck there. This besetting sin has grabbed hold of you and you cannot shake it. Only the sovereign hand of God can free you from this. 
But even in the darkest corner of your life where you're most helpless and know that there's nothing you could do to get yourself out of the, the rut that you're in, footprints will show up on the pit. Now, I want to think of something else. In an ultimate sense for every believer, and if you've been a believer a while, you don't have this recollection and that's a blessing. But know for sure, we're conceived in iniquity. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. That's our first experience. Some of us remember that time in our life where we had no spiritual life. We could not reach a hand out to God whatsoever. We didn't know we needed God. We were so lost, we were in that kind of a pit. What saved us? What happened to awaken us, to revive us, to resurrect us from our spiritual deadness? In Joseph's seemingly hopeless situation, there came a rescue. And while it seemed at the time God was not there, that he wasn't present, we know that nothing could be further from the truth. And it's at that moment when you're in the pit that God shows himself miraculously there, savingly there. In fact, you know, as we have looked at the life of Joseph just briefly this morning, And we look at our lives today and consider some parallels. There's one set of footprints throughout, and it begins in the ultimate pit for all of us where we were dead in our sins. There was Joseph, completely helpless, unable to save himself. God saved him from the pit, carried him out, and carried him throughout his life. You know, if we're totally honest with the biblical text in the life of Joseph and anyone else we would analyze, there is never a time in his life where there is one set of footprints as the poem suggests. There's only ever one. And they are those of the Lord Jesus Christ carrying us throughout. God was most present in the life of Joseph when he was in the palace, when he was in the prison, and when he was in the pit. That's where he was most present. And everywhere along the way, by the way. And we have to recognize him in all these places. Now, I'm not a poem, poet, or the son of a poet. But I do have a bit of a rendition that I would submit we should have on our wall instead. One night, a man had a dream. He dreamed that he was walking on the beach with the Lord. Across the sky, a life flashed before him. There was a cross and a grave. Footprints led to the cross and skipped over to the grave. To his surprise, the footprints continued on the other side of the grave. Then he saw the impression of his own dead body lying in the sand. The footprints meet the impression, lift up the body, and carry it throughout all the ups and downs of life. The man was perplexed and said to the Lord, what is the meaning of this? Why is there only one set of footprints? And the Lord replied, my precious child, you were dead, but I made you alive. And it is I who carried you from the pit and I carry you still today. I will never leave you or forsake you, whether you be in the palace, the prison, or the pit. And the prophet Isaiah wrote in his 46th chapter, even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, and I will carry, and I will save. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, when we fail to realize your presence, please point us to your word. It is in your word that we find the truth. Your word is where we find what is real. We thank you, O Lord, for never leaving us and never forsaking us. You have said that your presence will go with us, Lord Jesus. You are Emmanuel, God with us. You have promised to be with us always, even to the end of the age. And we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.